During the pandemic, parents got a first-hand look at how their children are being taught. Many didn't like what they saw. In particular, they didn't like how their children were being taught to read. This led to a new phase in the so-called reading wars, the decades-long debate over how children should be taught to read. I'm Mike Mazza, Associate Fellow at the Ayn Rand Institute. Here to talk with me about the reading wars is ARI Associate Fellow and recipient of the Conceptual Education Fellowship, Sam Weaver. Hi, Sam. Hi, Mike, glad to be here. Great, glad to have this chance to talk to you about this. So um, <clears throat> why don't we just start with a little bit of context setting? What, are the, what is the reading war? Um, what are the factions? Why should we care? Sure, so the, the reading wars are the controversies over how children should be taught how to read. And it has really been a debate that's been going on for many decades. I mean, there are all sorts of different phases in the reading wars, uh, particularly notable times when this has been at issue have come in the 1950s and 60s, when there was a lot of debate uh, sparked by this book, Why Johnny Can't Read, which alleged that there was uh, serious problems uh, with the way that reading was taught in American schools. There was a debate that was sparked by that book. It, this debate came up again in the 1990s and, and early 2000s. And it's come up again in the last couple of years. As, as you mentioned in the opening, I think the uh, COVID pandemic and remote school was a, a big trigger point for the, the new iteration of this debate. Basically, th there's a lot of aspects and, uh, and complexities in the debate, but the basic issue is whether uh, or not systematic phonics is a crucial, indispensable core part of what you need to do in order to teach children how to read. So to get some, get a basic definition or basic understanding of this on, on the table, phonics is l learning how to read or teaching a child how to read by teaching them uh, the correspondences between letters and sounds. So it's learning, you know, this letter matches up with this sound, the letter T matches up with the sound T, the letter uh, K matches up with K. And then there are also, you know, the more complex combinations and things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, and that that's the phonics is that teaching children to read by teaching them those things that you look at the letters, match them up with the sounds, combine them, and th that forms the words. If you, if you think about the idea of sounding out words, that's basically what phonics looks like. Um, I bring up also the issue of systematic phonics because there's there's a question of whether phonics is something you should just do every so often as a kind of a one piece of a picture of other methods that you're that you're using alongside it, or whether you should really dedicate a lot of time to going through all the major letter and sound combinations, spending a lot of time practicing reading those words. And uh, that that should be the, a really core element of a reading curriculum. The other side of the debate, the side that is against systematic phonics or skeptical of systematic phonics has gone through a variety of different methods that they endorse instead of using phonics. But the basic idea behind that movement, that view is that you don't need to learn how to read every letter match it up with sounds and sound them out into words. That it's not necessary to learn that in order to learn how to read and that children can learn how to read in some other way without doing that or without doing that systematically. Um, and what their specific methods are 
it, it varies somewhat, but that's, that's the core of that, that view. As for why it matters, well, uh, it matters a lot if you care about pretty much anything in education, uh, because reading, of course, as we all know, is a really foundational skill. It's necessary to pretty much anything that you're doing in education, any other of the higher subjects in education you might care about, history, science, these things rely on being able to read. Um, along with most careers, most opportunities to improve your life and to live the best life possible to you. And so it matters if we're teaching reading correctly. It matters if children are learning how to read really well. And what I'm going to argue as, as we get more into this is that systematic phonics instruction is really important to make sure that all kids or most kids learn how to read really well. And when you don't have systematic phonics, some children still do learn how to read and still do learn how to read pretty well, but a lot of them don't. A lot of them end up learning how to read a little bit, learn, having poor reading skills, not really developing as readers. And that really inhibits the opportunity that they have to live the best life possible. It really just cuts off so many avenues uh, for them to, to you know, pursue their goals and values. Yeah, so, so I, I was taught phonics. Um, that's how I learned to read it. And so far as I can remember uh, that far back, I was taught phonics. So, and you, you gave us a kind of, uh, you know, rundown of sounding out words. That, that All of that stuff is phonics. So what does it look like to do the other approaches? Like if they're not sounding out words, what are, the, what are some of their like particular strategies? I'm reading a book. How do I know what the words are if I don't sound them out? Like what's, what do I do? Yeah. So there's, there are a few different views. The one that's been most influential in the last 50 years or so is uh, what's called the whole language idea of reading. And this is taken various forms, but, but ideas from this method and, and well, ideas from this movement and methods endorsed by it are still in use in a lot of American schools today. The basic idea of whole language is that they have a view of how reading works that is different from the view that behind phonics. Their, their view is that we don't read by looking at all the letters in all the words, identifying precisely each word, reading words by sounding out the letters, at least until you know a point where we've read a word enough times that we can quickly recognize it. They, they think we don't do that, that that's not what reading looks like or how it works. Their view is more that reading is a process that involves using all sorts of different pieces of information that you find in the text, around the text, bring to the text from your own personal context. And that basically reading works by piecing together a bunch of these different items of information and uh, determining the meaning of the text without going through every letter and every word. Uh, so what reading instruction looks like on this view is teaching children how to make use of all these pieces of information to basically make, I mean, this is my description, not theirs, but basically to make better guesses about mm. what particular words are. And so one example to m make this a little bit more concrete is a, a popular method uh, called three cueing, which is an idea that comes out of uh, straight out of the theorists of whole language. And basically this idea is that 
if a child comes across a word that's unfamiliar, that they can't figure out what that word is, what they should do is look at three different pieces of information, three different cues in order to figure out what that word is. And those cues are, and this is the order that they give them, one, meaning. What is the word supposed to mean? And when you're looking at children's books, meaning usually comes down to look at the picture. So if you see a picture of uh, a cat, you might guess that that word is cat. Um, it, and then, so that's one, one cue. Another type of cue is context. So if you're looking for uh, a, a if it, get the, uh, sorry, I think I cut out for a second. Um, the second, the second cue is context. I was saying, if, if you think that it's going to be a noun, it sounds like a noun would fit in there. That might lead you to expect it's cat as opposed to run. Uh, mm -hmm. And then it's the last cue is supposed to be the letters. But th what this three cueing method amounts to is saying, first, look at the picture, then try to think of a word that would fit in this sentence, and then look at the first letter or second letter of the word that you see on the page. So the idea is that you're supposed to use all these different pieces of information to try to make educated guesses about words as opposed to reading all the letters. Yeah. When, when we were talking uh, yesterday about this, you gave a good example of uh, how this can go wrong in a more, uh, uh, in a later context. So there was a high school student who uh, was trying to read a sentence about Germany and Poland and how did he three cue it? Yeah, so he was he didn't know how to read all the the letters of the word. The the, the sentence said that uh, that the Germans had invaded Poland, and the child read the word as invited, uh, because he hadn't learned how to sound out all these letters. He just saw well this that I see some of the letters. Uh, I guess like a verb would fit in here. I uh, so it, I guess it's invited which of course is disastrous if you're trying to read that and understand what actually happened in World War II. Right, right. right. So what's the, what's the present uh, state of things? Like what's the, um, there's been, I know there's been a lot of push for phonics in some areas of the country, um, but there's been pushback. And you mentioned this has been going on for decades. So I had phonics, did you, I, I assume you had phonics too. So there are pockets of phonics teaching. Is it, like, could we break it down? Like half of schools do phonics, half do whole language, or how does this break down uh, nationally as far as we can tell? Yeah, it's a little hard to tell because there isn't great uh, data on what's happening on a school by school level, but we can get a, a general picture of what's going on. So first, yes, uh, there are teachers who do phonics. It's not it's not a tiny number, it's, it's a, a significant number of teachers Actually, I would say if we're just saying do phonics, most teachers do some phonics. phonics. So one of the big questions is how systematically <clears throat> are they doing phonics? And I, based on a, a study or a survey that was done of uh, kindergarten through second grade teachers in 2019, so it's a few years old, but this was a survey done by Edweek. They found that 22% of the teachers who responded to this survey said they do explicit systematic phonics. So 22%, that's one in five, one, one in four, five. Uh, say what I do is explicit systematic phonics. Um, so it's, you know, there's a substantial number who are doing that. Well, what about the other, you know, 78%? Most of those teachers 
say that their philosophy of reading is something called balanced literacy. So 68% Sorry, I think I, I cut out for a second. Yeah, you, you um, pick up a little bit. You, last we heard was 68% uh, say. Yeah, 68% of the teachers in that survey said that their approach is balanced literacy. What is balanced literacy? Balanced literacy is this idea that uh, we're going to mix and match methods from various different approaches, mainly phonics and whole language, and try to get the best of all worlds, uh, have mm -hmm. some, of, some of this and some of that, which means that it's hard to tell what exactly those teachers are doing if they just say, I, I do balanced literacy. I mean, I compare it sort of to a mixed economy where there's a lot of countries in the world where you can say that they have a mixed economy, but it's hard to say exactly like what elements of those economies are free markets, what elements are controlled by the state. It's different in different cases. I think it's similar in, in the case of balanced literacy. So some of those balanced literacy teachers probably are teaching a lot of phonics and are maybe doing something that could be called systematic phonics instruction. A lot of them are not. A lot of them probably are teaching a lot of uh, methods from whole language uh, and doing phonics lessons bit by bit, kind of piecemeal on an as needed basis, which means that they're getting, there's, there's some benefit from the phonics instruction but it's limited because it's not the primary method and it's not taught in this complete systematic way. Mm. Um, and just a note on, on that is, by the way, is that uh, almost no teachers today will say, I teach whole language. I'm an advocate of the whole language approach. And so one of the things that comes up if you criticize whole language is you sometimes get accused of attacking a straw man because it's not something that anyone does anymore. Uh, it's mm -hmm. true that nobody says, or almost nobody says, I do whole language, I advocate whole language. But the, a lot of the methods that are used in balanced literacy programs, including some of the most popular reading curricula in the country, are methods that come from whole language. They've just been kind of rebranded, repackaged, and with the proportion of phonics lessons bumped up a certain amount. Okay. Yeah, so then... Let's, I, one more piece of context I want to ask you about is just uh, how, how we got here. So you said no one teaches a whole language anymore. And I have to, I have to say, so I, I was familiar with older phases of the reading wars. So I'd, I'd heard of the book, uh, Why Johnny Can't Read. And um, Ayn, Ayn Rand in some of her essays talks about uh, so, some of the bad methods of teaching uh, reading. So I, I was aware that this had been a debate at some point in the past. When I heard you start to talk about this, I was a little surprised that it, that there was still a debate over this. Seems like the sort of thing that could have been resolved in the, what, uh, 70 years since Johnny Can't Think? Is, is that how old that book is? You said the 50s? So Yeah, it's about 70 years old. Yeah. So what, what are the, what were the main phases and what's, what are the main highlights that are relevant to understanding how we got to the point where it's now phonics versus uh, the balanced approach rather than, rather than pure whole language. Yeah. Uh, so I think that there are three main phases to, to understand uh, this debate and how it's unfolded in the United States. So yeah, the first phase is what 
what came up in the 1950s that Rudolf Flesch wrote about in that book, Why Johnny Can't Read. Um, that he was commenting on how reading instruction was done in the US in the 50s and had been done for a, a few decades previously to that. And what he was criticizing was a method that's called uh, the look-say method. Um, mm -hmm. It's sometimes also called whole word, but I prefer to say look-say because when you say whole word and whole language, it gets confusing trying to distinguish those two. So the look-say huh. method uh, is this idea that uh, you should learn how to read by learning uh, entire words, by memorizing the entire words all, all at once. So you see the word uh, fish and you just see the, that word and you memorize that this set of symbols corresponds to the word fish, as opposed to learning each of the letters and how they correspond to sound. So learning what, the, what sound F corresponds to an I and SH, et cetera. Uh, so this method was used in the, the 30s, 40s, 50s, was pretty much uh, the most popular method at that time. It was criticized by Rudolf Flesch in the 50s. There was a lot of public discussion and debate about this issue. There were studies and research done on the effectiveness of different methods. And what basically came out by the late 1960s was that it was pretty clear that phonics was superior to the look-say method, that it had mm -hmm. superior results, that the look-say method caused problems, left children behind. and you might have thought if you were, Mike, maybe this is what you thought thinking about what people were saying at that time that, okay, this would be the end of the, the discussion. People would adopt yeah. systematic phonics adopt phonic. they would abandon say, and, and move forward with that. But what in fact happened is that almost at the same time or, or in the few years right after some of these studies came to light really showing the effectiveness of phonics, uh, was that the whole language movement started. People launched mm -hmm. the, mainly these American scholars, Ken Goodman and Frank Smith, uh, who were in a field that called psycholinguistics. They launched this new idea about how reading works and a corresponding new method of teaching reading, which was whole language. And that's what I was discussing before about the idea that there's a bunch of different sources of information. We piece these together to construct the meaning of a text what we don't do is read every letter of every word and identify the precise correspondence to spoken language and the precise uh, words that are on the page. And th so this was, these first uh, articles on whole language came out in the late 1960s and really spread a lot by uh, these people taking their case to, to teachers and to people in teacher training institutes and convincing them that this was really the, the way to go. This would be the uh, superior alternative to both phonics and look say. Okay. Okay. And they had various arguments, which we can get into of, of why this was supposed to be the case, but this became sort of the, the most popular move method uh, by the, the eighties and nineties in the U S and then in the nineties, people caught on again that, and that and brought, you know, reading experts who were on the side of phonics brought to public attention again, the fact that, well, hey, they're still not doing phonics. They're doing this other thing that also doesn't work and uh, argued against the whole language movement. Um, this pushback culminated with the 
the release of a report by the National Reading Panel, which was a meta-analysis of a bunch of different studies on reading methods that showed phonics was superior to, and to all the alternatives, including whole language. Um, and this was meant, you know, sort of taken as this is a, the new definitive statement on this in favor of phonics. Mm -hmm. But what happened, in fact, in the aftermath of that is that a lot of the people who believed in whole language uh, retreated, but in a calculated way. They didn't go over to phonics and, and they weren't convinced to start teaching phonics systematically. What they did was more uh, turn whole language combine it with some a little bit more phonics than they were doing before and create the idea of balanced literacy, uh, which okay. basically enabled them to keep doing the things that they believed in, keep using the methods that they liked from whole language, mm -hmm. but also have something to say to the parents uh, who came asking, well, do you guys teach phonics? I heard phonics is really important. Yeah, of course we teach phonics. Along with other methods, we get the best from all worlds. And so that was the sort of the balanced literacy phase that has continued until the present. So there's really three major phases to understand the, the phonics versus look say, which comes to an end in the fifties and sixties, the phonics versus whole language, which starts in the late 1960s and goes until about 2000. And then the phonics versus balanced literacy, which is the present phase. Okay. So you, you said a few times that these are not just uh, theories of how to best teach reading, but they're theories of how reading works. So could you explain what you, what you mean by that? Yeah. So a lot of where, when, when you get into the theoretical justifications of these methods is it, it comes down to the question of what do we actually do when we read? In particular, what do people who know how to read really well do when they know how to read? And how can we teach children in a way that gets them to that point, that gets mm -hmm. them to be those skilled, you know, the skilled readers that we know of, you know, with adults who know how to read really well. Um, and so the idea behind phonics, and this is what I think is, is right, and I think it's pretty well established is actually how it works, is that skilled readers... Uh, though they do recognize words, you know, if you see a word that you know, you almost instantly, you know, the, the meaning jumps to your mind. Like if you see the, if you see the word, uh, you know, cat, you don't, you don't have to just go through the process of sounding it out. You see that those letters and immediately, you might immediately think of like, an, like actual cats, you know, furry animals mm -hmm. and things like that. Um, but that, but that is the result of you having automatized your recognition of that word and how you got to that point with all the words that you recognize is, but is sounding out the words basically is recognizing the letters and how they correspond to the sounds of spoken language, doing what's called decoding, looking at those, those letters in a, in a particular word, translating them to the appropriate corresponding sounds and blending those sounds together to get the word, to recognize the word that you probably know from having heard it or spoken it in, you know, everyday speech. Well, can, I, can I ask? Yeah, so, so what you're saying is, and the difference between a skilled adult reader and a child learning how to read, but on the right track, 
is uh, how automatized the uh, recognition of the elements of a word are, and then how rapidly um, the skilled adult reader can put them together to, to, to recognize the word. Is that, that's the basic claim? In, in essence, yes. And, and also, you, you know, you will automatize entire words at a, at, yeah. as you keep seeing them over and over again. But, but underneath that automatized knowledge is the work that you did as a child to decode those words, to understand how they, how these symbols encode certain sounds from the spoken word and uh, add up to, to make that you know, written word correspond to the spoken word. And if, you've, if you know this, if you have this knowledge and, and you arrived at your awareness of these words through that method, you can go back and you know, reconstruct and understand it. Like if I, if I give you a word that you recognize on site, it's, if, you, if you know how the sounds and letters match up, you can recognize, like it's not a mystery to you why did these, this set of symbols correspond to the word octopus? No, you can mm -hmm. say, well, okay, the O makes this sound and then the C makes this sound and you can piece it back That's together cool. because, yeah, because you, you did learn the underlying knowledge of it at some point. So then how do the, how do the, um, what was the, so there was, look, say, whole, how do the whole language uh, theorists think reading works then? So if they don't think there's, rapid uh, automatized decoding um there's must be something else and yeah what's it, that something else it's just the context um and memorization it's yeah i think memorization is behind a lot of what they think actually what actually would have to go on for their theory to make sense is that you would just memorize certain words and in that respect they're borrowing some from the look say people who really think that you just memorize a lot of words or maybe even all the words. Mm -hmm. uh, but the whole language people don't emphasize memorization. That's not what they want to talk about. What they want to talk about is using these various pieces of information to, uh, you know, I think it's actually fair to say guess what the words are. And, I, and the reason I say it, that I think it's fair to say guess is that one of the pioneering uh, articles in the whole language movement by Ken Goodman, one of the leading theorists, was titled Reading a Psycholinguistic Guessing Game. And his, okay. what he advances in that article is the idea that what, what we do, like what skilled adult readers do when reading, is gather a bunch of pieces of information, including looking at some of the letters, plus other features of the text, plus our own expectations about what words are likely to occur and we guess the words using all those pieces of information and then sometimes we get a, we have a guess that ends up being disproven by something that we encounter later and then we go back and we revise our previous guess but that's the idea of what goes on that's behind whole language mm -hmm. is that we guess and then we revise our guesses but we don't read words and letters in a precise way yeah so you were you were saying that it's pretty well established that phonics is uh, as a theory of how adults actually read is um either right or pretty much on the right right track versus especially when you contrast it with these other theories so how do how do they 
know that? How do they, how do we reach the point where we can say um, one of these theories of how people read is right versus the other? Like what's the, what's the evidence that they would muster to make that claim? Yeah. So part of the evidence is just understanding how language works and phonics is engaged with how written language actually works and corresponds to spoken language. And uh, so there's a certain amount of, there's a way in which it just, it makes sense that we understand written language by understanding written language, as opposed to understanding written language by making some guesses and some doing some revisions. Uh, so that's part of the evidence is just looking at, well, what, what is written language? How does it work? Well, it encodes the sounds of spoken language using symbols and mm -hmm. combinations of symbols. Um, and so if we want to understand uh, how, you know, what these symbols are, we should understand the code and decode that into the, into spoken language. Um, this also matches up, I think this matches up well with what we know, those of us who have studied uh, Ayn Rand's philosophy, objectivism, and have studied the epistemology uh, that, that she advocates in, in Introduction to Objectivist Epistemology, which is that we, we understand the world by using concepts that uh, enable us to reduce a bunch of knowledge, uh, a bunch of information into smaller numbers of units and learning how to read by or reading by looking at letters that correspond to sounds is a conceptual method because a certain letter is a symbol that stands for the same sound wherever it occurs in whichever word it occurs. And so by using that sort of method, we can learn a finite number of a pretty low number of symbols and their cor correspondences to sounds and automatize that knowledge. And then we can use that to identify what sound those symbols correspond to wherever we encounter them and uh, use that to identify the words. And then also as we identify a word over and over again, we eventually automatize our recognition of that word. Okay. Yeah. Is there, also, is there, okay, good. Yeah, I was yeah. gonna ask about, yeah. So my next, my, my kind of follow-up is just the, those kind of considerations, though, are, are not what come up in the mainstream line of the debate. Right? So they're, they're, it's not objectivists debating about this. It's not people influenced by Rand. So what, what would the phonics people point to as the most important evidence? And then um, after that, let's talk about the whole language side. Yeah. So the phonics people do sometimes talk about the structure and nature of written language. So they don't get this sort of epistemological point about reducing uh, reducing the number of units and having these concepts that enable us to retain a, a bunch of knowledge in a small number of units. But they do talk about the structure of written language, the way that it is a code for spoken language, and that it makes sense that we would understand that code by understanding how it works. But that's not their only evidence that they point to. So they also, uh, have so if you're talking about reading instruction there are a lot of studies on the effectiveness of different methods uh there have been meta analysis uh, meta analyses of these uh studies that have been done a few different times the two most notable ones are a meta analysis that was done by gene chal in the 1960s 
which came up favoring phonics basically over Luxay, uh, and a meta-analysis done by the National Reading Panel in 2000, which favored phonics over a variety of other methods, including both Luxay and whole language. Um, and these usually, these analyses covered a lot of different studies that had been done and found uh, some results that were replicated across those studies in favor mm -hmm. of uh, phonics, basically enabling children to read better after they'd had a phonics program versus yeah, after having a different sort of program. Um, okay. That's another type of evidence. There's yeah. also been some uh, studies in recent years, and I, I have less of the knowledge base I would need to evaluate this as evidence, but it's, there's interesting mm -hmm. stuff that's been done by cognitive scientists, uh, neuroscientists, uh, studying things like eye tracking, tracking what our eyes do when we're reading a piece of text. And these findings t seem to line up with what you would expect if what we do is read every, look at every letter of the word, identify each word individually and precisely, as opposed to what you would expect if what happens is we make a guess and then we go back and revise that guess based on previous, based on new information that we receive. Um, so that's another okay. sort of, piece of evidence that's out there and is cited that I think I would need more expertise in, in that the relevant sciences to evaluate, but it's, it's mentioned a lot. Okay. So the, then the, the pro phonic side is they, they would say, look, there's multiple, there's multiple streams of observational and experimental evidence pointing towards phonics, plus there's strong theoretical reasons to, from, from the nature of language to think about, to think that phonics is on the right track. So what is, what's the case for whole language then? Where, where did, um, what, what sparked this as a theory and what kind of evidence was given in its favor? And then what's so curious to see what the people who still want to use whole language techniques would say to the, to the phonics, um, case. Yeah. So maybe we should start with what kind of evidence was given in when whole language was introduced onto the scene. Uh, so when we're looking at the 1960s and 70s, people like Ken Goodman and Frank Smith, there's also a theorist uh, named Mari Clay, uh, who was working in New Zealand, who came up with similar ideas to them, although she seemed to be doing a, a lot of her stuff independently. What these theorists were doing and what they cited as evidence for their method was what they called miscue analysis. So what they were doing was looking at children who were actually trying to read, children who were not particularly skilled readers yet, and identifying where they made mistakes when they were reading a passage out loud to the experimenter. And they identified the different mistakes that children made. And they said, well, these mistakes fall into these categories, uh, different types of mistakes that they make. And what we sort of can, what we learn from looking at these different mistakes and analyzing them is that uh, what readers do, what, what children do when they read is, and what adults do, they said, when we read is uh, use all these different streams of information to construct the meaning of the particular text. Now, one thing you might find strange about this is that they use mistakes that they were relying on uh, mistakes as opposed to what people were doing when they were reading successfully. Uh, so that's one thing to, I think to keep an eye on when 
you're thinking about that as a piece of evidence. But nonetheless, this was, we worked with a bunch of children, we looked at what they were doing, and we figured out this is what they are doing and we need to help them do this more effectively. Uh, so that's one piece of evidence that was used. And a lot of the evidence that is, has been cited since then, um, they're still relying on some of that evidence in, in the people who advocate methods like this today. But a lot of what they have been cited since then is uh, experience-based evidence, like teachers or professionals who say, well, I went into the classroom and I taught children using this method and here's what I found. And, it, and uh, they loved reading and they got better when I did this stuff. And uh, this is the sort of thing that uh, you should do yourself. There's a lot of, in the education profession, the, uh, the prioritization of the experiences of other teachers, the experience, the things that mm -hmm. other teachers have done and liked and found effective. That's, that's given a lot of weight by many people in the education profession. So if there's some, you know, guru who comes along and says, I did this, this works for me, you should try it too. People put a lot more weight on that in the education profession then I think a lot of people in other, especially people in the sciences, really think is, is merited. One mm -hmm. other item that is brought up a lot is, or that, that is, I think, behind this whole perspective is that a, a lot of the people in the education profession, including those who are really favorable towards whole language and its methods, tend to be suspicious of direct instruction of sequenced and ordered content presented to a child by a teacher. They will often kind of vilify this as drill and kill, uh, rote learning, things that will you know, kill the children's motivation to learn, turn, turn all the learning into a chore. Uh, they're doing these exercises. They have no idea why they're doing them. They're unmotivated. They don't care. There's that picture that has been painted around systematic phonics. And the teachers who are you know, inclined to buy into that picture and who are suspicious of direct instruction and the kind of sequenced teaching of content because of that picture will be, favorable, be favorably inclined to a method that says, as whole language does, no, you don't do the, the phonics drills, the exercises, the memorizing of the symbols and letter correspondences. What you do is you just give the children really good books and you do these sort of guided reading circles where you, they're, they're just reading these great books right away and you just help them and give them guidance for how they can you know, best figure out what's in there and, and help them when they get to difficult passages. But we start with great books that they will love to read uh, and, and we don't do all the drills and exercises. And that is an idea, an image that is really appealing to a lot of people in the education profession. And I think, again, uh, makes them want to find something that looks more like that as opposed to something that looks more okay. like phonics and probably disposes them more favorably to the evidence that is given in favor of a, an approach like that. Okay, so then let's start to talk about um, what to make of all of this. So you're a, you're a phonics guy. Um, what, what, what is it that you think, like, if you had to make your case, uh, for phonics, 
what is it and what, what's the case? And then um, what's, what's the basic error in the, in the alternative approach, particularly the balanced approach, right? Because they want to add in some phonics. Yeah. So I would, I would go back to the points that I made, I think, I think about the way that language works and the epistemological point about the way that a conceptual mind works. Um, now, I think there the other evidence is relevant, uh, I think, especially the studies on what happens if you teach this way versus that way. That's you know really relevant information from, from reality that I certainly don't want to dismiss or diminish. That tells us something. But if you're looking at, okay, what is the causation here? Like, okay, I found that I do this method, it works. Uh, I do that method, it doesn't work so well. Why? I think that's where I look to the, the nature of language, the way that written language is a code for spoken language. Uh, and the, the basic point that if you want to understand, if you want to break a code, if you want to look at something that is, it starts you know, when you don't know how to read as a bunch of squiggly lines on a piece of paper, uh, you, the best way to do that is to learn how, that, how those lines correspond to the sounds that you make in, in speech. So there's, I think that makes a lot of sense. There's, there's also the issue of the epistemological point that I brought up before, which is, uh, I think, especially relevant. And Ayn Rand makes this point, I think, in, in her writings on this debate. Um, it, it's especially relevant when you're comparing phonics to look-say, which is a method that mm -hmm. outright basically advocates memorizing entire words. Uh, the point that it's conceptual knowledge is really powerful. The point that if you can learn a certain number and it's a, a couple of dozen really to get much of English, a couple of dozen of correspondences between letters or combinations of letters and sounds in spoken language, once you learn that, you can look at many of the, you know, the tens of thousands of words that are out there and read them by translating those letters into the, into the sounds. Uh, that's much more powerful than memorizing words one at a time, because you only have to learn, memorize a certain amount of information that then those letter sound correspondences are relevant wherever they show up in whatever word you encounter them in. Uh, so that's, the, the whole word method or the, the look-say method is just anti-conceptual in the way that it says, learn each word as though it's a brand new phenomenon that isn't related mm -hmm. to the other words, uh, well, even though it is related by having the same limited set of symbols. The whole yeah. language method is, I think, th the theoretical grounding that is given for it is kind of bizarre. Uh, it And I think it would be hard to justify. And the the things that they bring up to justify it aren't don't like don't really stand up when you think about it. I mean, the idea that we should read or that we do read by making educated guesses and then revising those guesses. I, I mean, it, it kind of comes down to an idea that we don't really precisely read every word on the page and that we might just guess wrong and move on. And there's a, there's a subjectivism in that idea, mm -hmm. which is sometimes endorsed by some of its theorists that the idea that well we try to construct the meaning as best we can but we can never really know that there's no objective meaning we can never really know what exactly is meant by something it's 
we we get something that's close and piece it together. Uh, so okay. there's something strange about that and, yeah. and wrong, I think, about that. Um, and so then, then the whole, I just want to say one, th one other well, thing, the whole study, the, yeah, the, the whole study, the idea that the evidence for this is studying the mistakes that children make, I think it's really wrongheaded. I sort of pointed out earlier, I think there's something weird about that. And I think what has happened because of studying mistakes and trying to figure out like saying that those mistakes reflect how people do and should read, and then just figuring out, okay, how can we help them make better guesses in, based on what these mistakes are? I think what that ends up doing is actually codifying a method that teaches what people who don't know how to read very well do. And there's more evidence that we can talk about for this if you want, but there's evidence that uh, what whole language methods actually do are, is teach strategies that unskilled readers use to compensate for the fact that they don't know phonics, that they don't know how to decode the letters into words. Um, and so there's this, it's, that's really bad if that's what it's doing. And I think that is what it's doing. So then is, is your view that phonics is a kind of cure-all that if we just do phonics, everyone will be great readers or is it, do you have uh, some other view that there's other things we need to incorporate? Yeah, the, the picture is a little bit more complicated than just that. So the way I put it is that, I mean, a, a shorthand way of putting it at least is that phonics is, uh, systematic phonics is necessary, but not sufficient for teaching children how to be really skilled readers. Um, you, you can't get around if you're, now, Asterisk, there are some children who just figure out phonics on their own and don't have to be taught it. Uh, and mm -hmm. so you, those children, you don't need to teach them it, but they still needed to figure out the thing that you need to teach other children. That asterisk aside, children need to learn phonics in order to become skilled readers. It's necessary and it's an important part of any reading curriculum or reading instruction plan. It is not everything. It is not that the case that if you get phonics right and you do it systematically and you do it in a really effective way that, okay, now children will be, you know, they'll read, they'll pick up Shakespeare and they'll breeze through it and find it really uh, easy or, or manageable and enjoyable and that it'll just work for them that way. That's not really how it works. I, I would break reading down into kind of two major components and there are some smaller subcomponents under them, but uh, there's the two major ones are decoding and comprehension. So decoding is getting from the symbols of written language to the spoken language that you already know or that, that you speak, that you hear. Um, and that's, fundamental, it's crucial, and phonics plays uh, an indispensable role in decoding. It teaches you how to decode these symbols into sounds and combine them into words. But then there's the element of comprehension. And that's really important too, because if you can just decode uh, and say, okay, I piece these letters together, they correspond to these sounds, they make this word. If you don't know what that word means, you're not really helped very much yet by being mm -hmm. able to decode it. Um, and, and that's something that's really important. And I think that's also something that, that by the way, the schools in the US don't do very well. 
uh, is, is give children the resources they need to understand the meaning of words. The comprehension is a function of things like your vocabulary. How many words do you just know in spoken language what this word means? The more that you do, the more that when you decode it off the page, you say, oh yeah, that one, I know what that means. Uh, and other factors, including general knowledge, because if you're reading a whole paragraph, is it about something that you can recognize that you have the context to make sense of? Or is it about stuff that you've never heard of that's foreign to you? You barely know what the author's talking about. And also knowledge of grammar, another thing that is not taught in a systematic way in most American schools today, because that's relevant when it comes to trying to make sense of a sentence or a paragraph. How do the words relate uh, and express a particular idea, a particular meaning? So if you just brought in phonics and did that really well, what you would get is students who are able to decode the words. They're able to get from the symbols on the page to the sounds, the words of spoken language. That's really important and that's great. But if our goal, which I think it should be, is that children are able to read really well, to learn from reading, to uh, experience the, the pleasure of reading stories, novels, literature, to be able to gain knowledge and uh, you know, understand the world and communicate through reading written language, they also need these elements that make up the ability to comprehend. Uh, and so that's, if, if, you, if you get phonics right and your reading comprehension scores don't go up, that could happen. And the thing to look at is, are we giving children the resources they need to excel at comprehension? Okay. So now as our final topic, I want to pick your brain about why this uh, battle is still raging. It sounds like the evidence is all in favor of one theory of reading and there's not much going for the alternatives. So why hasn't there just been a, a sea change? You, the, the last major meta-analysis, when was that? Uh, 2000. 2000, yeah, so that's 23 years ago. It seems like there's plenty of time for uh, everyone to get on board. So what's the, what what's, explains the persistence of the failed approaches? Yeah, so there are a few different factors. One I mentioned earlier is that there's there are attitudes in the teaching profession that I think bias a lot of people against systematic phonics instruction, make them want to accept the evidence for whole language methods or things that look like those. Um, I think that that's not a full explanation. And the, and the more, the further we get down this road, the more evidence that comes to light and is presented to teachers and to the public, the more that that's, that doesn't work as an explanation of, because the more overwhelming the evidence gets, the more, even if you're sort of, you, you don't like the conclusion, the more it's either, okay, well, you either are thinking and you, you have to accept that conclusion or you're evading and then there's a whole other issue, uh, moral issue that comes up. Another important factor is that um, education as a field in the United States is heavily controlled. Uh, it's most of the schools are government run. There's heavy government regulatory environment around private institutions. And that means a couple of things. One is that 
there's no sort of, or not much in the way of a competition among different schools that try different things, uh, which means that methods that are unsuccessful, that produce bad results, that fail, and even that are unpopular among parents, don't die out quickly the way that they would in a free market type of environment. A, mm -hmm. a public school can produce bad results for decades and still remain open and still often not have to change a whole lot or have to make big fundamental changes. I mean, there are mechanisms by which school people try to change the schools, but they're all political mechanisms. They're all mechanisms around electing officials or nominating new bureaucrats or parents petitioning school boards. And these have some effect and they have had some effect. I mean, to the extent that there has been improvement, which I think there really has, it's been a lot of these public campaigns that have brought about some improvement, but there's not the, the, the situation where you have these school established schools using bad methods and some new upstart comes in and uses the phonics, systematic phonics method and just outcompetes those schools by producing much better educated graduates who you know, are much more capable and the parents all just choose the new schools. Yeah. So the, the public schools and uh, the teachers in them are is basically going on, going along with curricula that are um, published by companies that develop curricula and that the teachers are taught in the teacher's college. So there's, there's gotta be some division here between um, uh, like the practitioners and then the advocates and the, the theorists. So what, what do you make of, uh, let's start just with the teachers, the average teacher, are they a partisan to a theory uh, or are they just kind of, you know, their, their mistake or their sin is just being a little second-handed and not thinking too much about how effective what they're doing is or what, what's going on at that level. And then I want to ask about the, at the level of the teachers colleges and the, the publishing houses where they're supposed to be thinking about this stuff deeply. Yeah. So with the, the teachers, the practicing teachers in the schools, I think it's much more the, the latter of what you said, that it's, there's some secondhandedness. Yeah. But it's not in, I think most cases, they're hardcore partisans for a particular theory and they're, you know, actively resisting uh, evidence, even when they, you know, it's staring them in the face. I think most teachers are going off of what they learned in their, their teacher trainings or what they, learned from more experienced teachers, you know, that they, they tend to do a student teaching year uh, after they get out of college or during college, and they learn a lot from the, the teacher who they're sort of apprenticed to. Um, often also, they're using a curriculum that's provided by their principal or by their school district. And if they haven't, you know, really gone out of their way to study the issues around reading and to look at the different methods and the evidence, there's, they are inclined, I think, to go along with what other people are doing with what they're given, sometimes what they're required to do. And that creates a problem, even if they don't particularly yeah. like it. Um, and they, they're just sort of going along with what's, with what's out there. Yeah. And you, you pointed out to me yesterday that something relevant here for thinking about what the teachers are doing and what, what they know is that they'll teach a third grade reading curriculum. Um, but then the students are gone, so they don't see what effect that has. They get a new batch of students the next year, 
they don't see how the how those students perform in in sixth grade or in high school so they're they're a little bit removed from what it's like you could say well how do you not know that you're uh that you you're teaching kids and they're not learning how to read and it's is that is that right it's part of it is just because you don't track them um if you're a third grade teacher you don't track them through high school and look at their performance yeah i think that's highly relevant uh yeah so teachers have students for just one year uh and often if they have if they have students who really aren't like really you can see there's a real problem they are not making any sort of progress in reading at all they will often refer that child to a reading specialist in the school and so now the child is the responsibility of the of the reading specialist for that the remaining of that year and the the classroom teacher doesn't know what's going on at all there um and yeah they have each cohort of children for just one year now you might still say well what do they see in the course of that one year you would still expect especially in kindergarten first grade second grade you would want to see progress, significant progress in reading in the course of one of those years. And there, I think uh, an important factor is a, a kind of strange feature of whole language methods that uh, without which I think they would not have endured nearly as long as they, they have, uh, it, which is that whole language methods often appear to work in the short run. A child who is taught using these methods often appears to get better at reading. They, are, they can tell you the words in more books than they could at the beginning of the year. Uh, and this is because a lot of these methods are based on the idea of you know, reading as, as guessing and revising. So they teach guessing strategies, including like I, I mentioned earlier, this method of like looking at the picture and using the context to try to figure out what a word is. And when you're dealing with children's books that are designed for six and seven year olds you have books that have pictures that often have pretty repetitive pretty simple uh vocabulary and and wordings where this sort of memorizing some words using strategies to guess other words is something that can appear to work for a time but the problem of it is that the bill comes due later on and so we talked about the child who was in like seventh grade who couldn't read invaded versus invite in a history textbook and that's where the bill comes due when they get older they don't have pictures the sentences are a lot more complicated there are a lot more words that are challenging that resemble other words you can't really guess anymore guessing doesn't work anymore and now the child is in serious trouble but that isn't necessarily obvious to the first grade teacher who sees the child improving in their ability to read these relatively mm -hmm. simple first grade readers and thinks everything's going well, it's, it's all working. Okay, so then what's going on with the people devising these curricula, the, the teachers' colleges, the professors, the um, um, publishers, the advocates? Like, why are they uh, sticking to something that's so obviously failing? Yeah, here I think there's, there's not much, not nearly as much as you can excuse as in the case of the, the teachers. I mean, when we're talking about people whose job is to understand how reading works, to look at the, the evidence around reading methods and to, and to produce curricula 
or train teachers to be effective reading instructors. There's a responsibility there. And, and what we've seen in the past couple of years, as we mentioned at the top, there's renewed debate around this. There have been some new uh, kind of efforts to advocate and to convince members of the public to advocate systematic phonics that I think have, by the way, been genuinely persuasive in the case of some classroom teachers who really didn't know what was going on. And this was brought to their attention and now they are, they are repentant and they're changing their ways. We've seen also some of the major institutions in education sort of backtrack uh, a bit, mm -hmm. but in, in really kind of ways that you can't excuse. So one of the major uh, reading gurus in America today, uh, Lucy Calkins announced last year uh, that, oh, I, I have learned from the science of reading, the, the scientific studies that have been uh, publicized po or popularized in the last few years. And I've realized I was wrong. I've, I've realized that I was mistaken and I'm now going to change my methods. But you know, so that's good if she really does sounds, that. Sounds but, good. Yeah, sounds good. But it's somebody whose job is to design reading curriculum, who has been doing that for two decades, and who's never looked at the scientific studies until there was public pressure and public criticism of her curriculum. I mean, that's the story that she's telling us. So there's either some dereliction uh, or dishonesty involved in something like that. And there's there are other cases where like, Columbia yeah. Teachers College is, is saying, oh, we're going to start following the evidence now. But you're a teacher's college. You're the, one of the most prestigious teacher's colleges in the nation. Why are you just now starting to pay attention to the evidence, you say? Is that is that just garden variety intellectual dishonesty? We have our pet theory and we want to defend it, you know, no matter what. Or is there something else going on? You mentioned that you you think of the alternatives to phonics as um, anti-conceptual, uh, as as fly, flying in the face of uh, what's required for a well like a developing conceptual consciousness. So do you think there's some f philosophical uh, 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 premises at play with these with these uh, teaching professors that um, it's it's not just that they've got their pet theory they want to stick to. It's like their pet theories almost implied by some deeper philosophical premises. Is that part of the story? I think so. Yeah. So one of the I think the most popular view about learning in, in, within schools of education is what they call constructivism, um, mm. which is this idea that what learning needs to involve is children constructing their own knowledge. Uh, and they need to like do, this is behind things like discovery learning and experiential learning and like figuring things out and, and creating your own knowledge as opposed to just being told things. Now, there's a way that you can hear that and, and think, there's something that is good about that. It sounds like there's an interpretation of it that's right in that knowledge requires active effort. It's not just that your mind is a vessel and it gets filled by being told things from other people. So there's something that's that you can interpret that to mean something that's right. But the, I think the way that it is understood by people in the field is a subjectivist view of it, is that there isn't really objective truth fact of the matter these are the this is the knowledge that students need to learn it's more they need to construct their own understanding of the world and that might be di different 
from another student's understanding or from the teacher's understanding. And that's good. That's, we, we don't want to have, uh, you know, the, the teacher imposing their own perspective on the student uh, because we should actually, you know, be tolerant of alternative constructions of the world. So there's this kind of, there's this subjectivist idea, I think, that children need to, they need to be allowed to just understand things in their own way and not, and that there's something they, they view as it's not really a right way to do that. Yeah. And there's something they view as a, as oppressive about the teacher saying, no, you're wrong. You're wrong about this. This is what's right. Uh, and so you get this in the, some of the whole language theorists there, they reflect this idea that they, the, the teacher shouldn't be imposing their reading of a text on the child. The child should be left free to, construct their own understanding, which may be different from the teachers. Okay, well, are there, is there any uh, final comments you wanted to make? I think we're running out of time. Um, I think one thing I just wanted to leave, leave people with, because we didn't quite get to this earlier, is that I think that there, there are encouraging signs in the, in the renewed kind of discussion around this issue. Um, I mean, it, the fact that people are discussing it again, I think is good because whenever you get the general public, parents especially involved in this conversation, the more that you tend to get moves towards sanity because the general public doesn't believe in these sort of strange theories and they are, they're much easier to convince of phonics and they put pressure on the, the mm -hmm. schools to, to change their ways. I think also the current discussion has some healthy aspects in that people are talking now not just about phonics is good but phonics should be systematic so that the issue that we have right now is pretty much everyone teaches some phonics but a lot of them don't teach it systematically and they teach it in combination with methods that are contradictory and like in balanced literacy if you're teaching both phonics and three cueing you're actually just leaving children really confused because what am I supposed to do when I get to an unfamiliar word? Am I supposed to look at the picture and make a guess? Am I supposed to sound out the letters? So you're, you're, what you have right now is there's good things that are done, but are often combined with bad things that are undoing the progress that phonics oh. makes possible. And so people are recognizing that more and more and saying, yeah, what we need is not just to teach more phonics, but also to get rid of these things that undermine phonics and teach children really bad habits like guessing in place of reading. I think also, and I, I think that the debate where the debate is going to go if progress continues to happen in the next few years is into the issue of how do we really optimize phonics curriculum to make them super effective? And that issue I brought up before about, well, we also need grammar and knowledge and vocabulary if we really want to improve reading comprehension ability and get the you know the scores on like national reading tests to improve uh so if it, it, there are signs that the debate is moving in that direction and a lot of the people who are big advocates on the phonics side talk a lot about that stuff and if that happens that will be good for not just for reading education but could potentially improve the overall approach to education in the schools and i think that what i want to you know advocate on that is i want to you know add to that the perspective that I get from objectivism that education ought to be conceptual and that there's all sorts of principles that we get from epistemology about 
the hierarchical structure of knowledge and the role of, of context, um, the role of unit economy, you know, that you want to reduce the knowledge that comes in a bunch of units, a big com complex amount of knowledge to uh, a few units that you can retain. I think those perspectives can help uh, move things in a really positive direction. So I, I want to leave people with, I think there's reason for optimism about where things are heading. And there's things that we can, that I think that we can contribute to this conversation uh, that I, I want to contribute that would be, you know, have some good results, hopefully. Well, great. Thanks, Sam. Uh, so on next week's show, uh, we have Ankar Gatte and Elon Journal talking about Mike Johnson and the state of American politics. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Click the bell notification for when we uh, to get notified when we go live or post new, new recordings. If you're watching a recording, please like, comment, uh, subscribe, share on uh, on various social media platforms. It helps us uh, boost our numbers, attract new viewers, um, and please do the same if you're watching uh, through Facebook uh, as well. If you have questions on uh, objectivism, on philosophy, we're now doing a monthly uh, separate Q&A podcast. Please send us uh, questions. This month's uh, coming uh, December episode will be on the history of philosophy featuring Dan Schwartz. You can send those questions to experts at einran.org. If you have comments or questions about today's episode, or you have suggestions for future episodes, uh, please send us email at newideal at einran.org. We read all of your emails, we reply to many, and we occasionally do podcasts based on suggestions you send us. So please, uh, please don't don't be shy and send us your comments and suggestions. Okay, thanks, Sam. This was a really interesting uh, conversation. I, I'm uh, glad to see you working on this, and uh, I'll uh, see you around in the future. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.